Well, as the earth has uh, continued to turn on its axis uh, and has again made us uh, made its annual journey around the sun, uh, we uh, we are met with the arrival of another Advent season. And in this season, we want to take time to ponder uh, the mystery and and to prepare our minds and our hearts to receive the gift of um, of the Christ Child Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who has come to be our Savior. That is, Jesus came in human flesh uh, to live among us a a perfect, sinless life. And as the only sinless representative of humanity to offer uh, once and for all the atoning sacrifice that purchased forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God for all who will repent of their sin, all who will transfer their trust to Christ alone. Advent also contemplates our confidence according to his covenant faithfulness that he is coming again to rule and to reign as our sovereign king. You know, deciding on a theme for an Advent series of messages is a perennial challenge. Uh, The question I always ask myself is, how do you tell the same story uh, over again um, and manage to find fresh insight that, that will instruct and nourish and strengthen uh, the people of God. It, I think of it this way. It's a little like holding up an exquisitely cut gemstone uh, to the light and just turning it so slightly uh, that you now behold a different facet uh, of that stone uh, from a slightly different angle. And so this year, uh, I've chosen to view the story Uh, through four different songs sung by both humans and angels who were surprised and who were filled with wonder to to find that God had written them into the narrative of the story that he was writing surrounding the birth of his son. And this morning we'll examine the song of Mary. Uh, Next week uh, we'll, we'll give attention to the song of Zechariah, who became the father of John the Baptist. He was the husband of Elizabeth, who we'll uh, think about together today. In week three, uh, the song of the angels to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And then in week four, the song of old Simeon in the temple. Uh, Each of them, rightly understood, should fill us with awe because they provide profound insight into the the mystery uh, and the miracle the wonder of what God sovereignly purposed to accomplish in and through the incarnation, the enfleshment, the birth in human flesh of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, God in human flesh. So will you stand with me and let's read together Mary's song from Luke 1, 39 through 55. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, 
The baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Verse 39 opens this passage with those three words, in those days. If you're new to the story, uh, you might be wondering what days those days were. So allow me to provide a brief retrospective on the backstory. Uh, let's back up to verse 26 of Luke 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, where a young girl named Mary, uh, a virgin probably 14 to 16 years of age, uh, an Israeli, uh, a Jewess, a no-name resident of the back country city of Nazareth, uh, is startled out of her routine, predictable life by a surprise visit from the angel Gabriel. Uh, Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Uh, betrothal is a little like our engagement, well, the way we view it today, except that the couple was regarded from the time of their betrothal as husband and wife. Uh, and they were recognized as such by the community uh, to the degree that if uh, during the betrothal, for example, the the husband were to die, uh, the wife would be considered, even though they had never uh, actually been married, um, the wife would be considered a widow and would be treated as such by the community. Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, Gabriel is one of only three angels mentioned in the Bible uh, whose names we know. Uh, The other two are Michael the archangel and Lucifer, whom we know also as Satan. In another place, we learn that Gabriel stands in the very presence of God. So he's come directly as he visits Mary in Nazareth and probably startles her. Understand that he has come directly from the very throne room of heaven, uh, from the presence of God to the presence of Mary. And he adds to her surprise by, uh, by his message that she, of all the daughters of Israel, has been chosen to become the mother of the promised Messiah, that her pregnancy will be a miraculous one created by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And along the way, she, he provides this description of just who her son will be. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And as if to compound the amazement of the moment, he he offers this insider information. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. You think this is impossible, Mary? Imagine your old cousin Elizabeth. She's pregnant. She's in her sixth month. Shocking. Unbelievable. Intimidating. Incredibly affirming all of the above. And and listen to her response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice two things with me before we move on. First, Mary chose obedience. Mary chose obedience. She, even in her short lifetime, had already settled the question of her own identity and her own availability to God so that she could say in the moment when it mattered most, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And secondly, in choosing obedience, Mary embraced the chaos that that she knew would result in her life from that choice. Misunderstanding, whispering campaigns, rumors. Sometimes... Obedience can be risky. Sometimes obedience can be costly. But Mary knew who she was, the servant of the Lord. And think about this. Without Mary's submissive obedience, there is no Christmas. Imagine the things that don't come to be because we're disobedient. Also wrapped up in the phrase, in those days, was surely the fact of, that some changes were beginning to take place already in Mary's body. She was maybe beginning to show or expected that she might quite soon, and she thought, you know, I think the hill country of Judea might be lovely this time of year. Uh, I believe the next three months might just be the perfect time to take a much-needed vacation. And so she headed for the hills and and arrived at the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as if things hadn't been exciting enough already, now things really start to pop. As she crosses Elizabeth's threshold as she walks through her door, the Holy Spirit himself in that moment reveals uh, fully and precisely to Elizabeth without any personal angelic visit, without having received a tweet, a text, an email, a phone call from Mary, precisely what was happening with Mary. And get this, the baby in Elizabeth's womb 
who in just a few months would be named John, who would in time become known as John the Baptizer, who was born to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah, this baby, John, did a backflip in the presence of the baby in Mary's womb. And how timely is it for us to realize and to affirm that an unborn fetus in his mother's womb was the first to rejoice at the news of Jesus. That's something to think about, isn't it? Go with me to verse 41. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And I really think that verse 45, that last sentence, defines what follows. Blessed is she who believed this, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, that Mary believed that what God said always comes to pass. And you can count on it. You can bet your life on it. You can risk your life on it. By the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Elizabeth confirms. Without without prior prompting, Elizabeth confirms the unique identity of Mary's baby, addressing her as the mother of my Lord, By the filling of the Holy Spirit, she blessed Mary for God's special call in her life. She blessed Mary's baby. And again, she blessed Mary for her obedience. How how awesome is that? And then Mary's heart just bubbles over in this, this verbal waterfall of praise and thanksgiving and worship. It's been called the Magnificat. And if you heard that but didn't know a Magnificat from an apricot, um, here's a simple explanation. In the Latin version of the New Testament, the, the translation of the New Testament into Latin, known as the Vulgate, uh, Magnificat is just the first word of that first sentence. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The Mary that's revealed, I think, in this passage is a Mary that we have not known. The Mary we never knew. And some have questioned whether Mary, being so young, could possibly have composed such a thoroughly biblical and deeply theological document as this. Some have speculated that that someone else wrote it later and inserted it for effect into Luke's narrative. Some imagine that as Mary hiked through the hills um, on the way to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, she may have just composed it in her mind. Others think that Elizabeth, who who is obviously much older and more mature, the wife of a priest, may actually have been the one who spoke these words and that they were only later attributed to Mary. 
I don't believe any of that. There are several instances in Scripture when the Holy Spirit Spirit put words in the mouths of men and women uh, that were not their own words. Uh, we, we recently thought together about one example, the Old Testament prophet Balaam. You remember that? We talked about him just recently, the, what I call the four-prophet prophet, prophet uh, who, was, who was hired by the enemies of Israel to curse the armies of Israel, pronounce curses over them. And if you remember the story, God intervened, and, and, and try as he might to, to speak curses over the armies of Israel, God just put blessing in his mouth. And so as he's trying to, trying to curse Israel, just, just this, this eloquent blessing comes out of his mouth. And, uh, Israel then won a mighty military victory. See, God can use anyone he chooses to accomplish his purposes. People like you and people like me. And in Mary, he found a young person with a mind nurtured on the Old Testament scriptures. Wasn't anything else available to her. A heart that belonged to God, a heart for her people Israel, and a longing for God's redemptive work in the world, a longing for change, if you will. There are two major themes in Mary's song. Uh, They are mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. In verses 46 to 50, Mary magnifies God for his mercy toward her personally, toward all who fear him. In verses 51 to 55, she magnifies God for his justice. So let's begin with that first one, mercy. Mercy. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Uh, Notice that verse 46 begins, And Mary said, Uh, It doesn't say, and Mary sang, although this has been called Mary's song. But but here's a mental image for you, if you like. Imagine Mary just twirling and singing with arms outstretched, like Julie Andrews on the mountaintop in The Sound of Music. I think that must be close to what actually happened, because Mary finally released all that, that she had been storing up in her own heart since the day the angel Gabriel first appeared to her. And so there's joy and there's worship and there's praise and there's wonder and there's gratitude and there's contemplation and there's recollection. And in verses 46 to 47, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I recognize that some of you here this morning have a Catholic background. So please know that by what I'm about to say, I have no intention of offending you. There's definitely something about Mary. We should honor, we should respect her, we should reverence her, we should even celebrate her for for the all-important role that she played as the one chosen to bear the Savior in her womb. 
and then to protect him and to nurture him. And then we know that Joseph at some point in Jesus' childhood must have died. And so Mary had that added responsibility of teaching Jesus throughout his childhood. But the Bible is clear and the Bible is definitive. Mary is never in Scripture given the title Mother of God. God is eternal. He has no mother nor, or, or father. Uh, instead, it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will share my glory with no other. Neither does the Bible ever suggest that we should pray to Mary or even through Mary. Um, instead, it says there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Neither does the Bible ever give us reason to believe the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which says that Mary herself was kept from the taint of sin from the time of her conception in her own mother's womb. Instead, Mary herself acknowledges God as her Savior. In Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. Beside me there is no Savior. So the songwriters had it right in that song, Mary Did You Know, when they wrote, Mary Did You Know, that your baby boy has come to make you new. That the child that you delivered will soon deliver you. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He would be her Savior. Her son would be her Savior. Mary was a sinner just like you and I are sinners, and only sinners need a Savior. So here she gladly confesses that great Truth, And as she does, she echoes the words of the prophet Habakkuk. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And then in verses 48 to 49, she itemizes the personal reasons that she, is magnif- that she magnifies the Lord. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So first, speaking of herself, she says that God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. We're we're reminded that Mary, up to that time, probably thought of herself only as one of the girls in the village. Uh, Growing up in her parents' home, being faithful in her synagogue, faithful to her betrothed Joseph, but but outside of Nazareth, unnoticed, unknown, unexceptional, uncelebrated. See, Mary is just the kind of person God seems quite pleased to use for his purposes, isn't she? God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And in Psalm 138, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. See, every, every young girl, every maiden, if you will, in Israel, from time immemorial, generation after generation had waited and quietly hoped that maybe she might be the one out of all the daughters of Israel to be the mother of the promised Messiah. And in that sense, Mary won every Powerball jackpot in history. She won the ultimate prize. Why? Not not because of anything she had said, not because of anything she had done, not because of any merit on her part, but just God's grace, His sovereign selection. And the angel has said, Greetings, highly favored one. It's from that place of humility and having been chosen that she declares, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And she sees in her circumstances the might of God, his, his total ability to accomplish everything that he intends, everything he chooses, everything he purposes without limitations, and the holiness of God, his total otherness, his incomparable righteousness, his mercy, his justice. But then in verse 50, Mary broadens the scope of God's mercy when she adds, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And in that she includes you and me. If we fit that description, those who fear him, those who reverence him, those who are in awe of him, honor him in their lives. Her words recall God's words to Moses in Deuteronomy 5.10 where he describes himself this way, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. That phrase, steadfast love, translates the Hebrew word that we contemplated last week, the word chesed. That little guttural sound in the beginning, chesed. God's faithful, covenant-keeping grace, His steadfast love, His steadfast mercy that endures forever. It's, it's, it's the direct parallel then to the Greek word that Mary uses in verse 5, Elios, God's mercy. In sending His Son to be our Savior, God didn't have just a, a small select group of Jewish people in mind. Uh, neither did He have just the nation of Israel on His heart. But instead, Jesus said later, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. The mercy of which Mary spoke is for you and for me if we will repent and turn in faith to him. The second theme is justice. Justice. 
And this next section takes a, a distinctive turn. We think we know Mary, right? But, but Mary is a bit of a puzzle to most of us. She's, she's definitely not the statue, the, the figurine wrapped in North Carolina blue um, with a pious, somber facial expression who often holds her baby in her arms but, but never speaks, rarely makes eye contact with the rest of us. Nor is she the naive, uneducated country bumpkin as she is often portrayed. This Mary is deeply spiritual. This Mary is also highly political. Her spirituality is combined with a a deep passion for justice, a a longing for, for God to do something, to finally and decisively act on behalf of Israel according to his promise. The Mary we never knew longed for a a new kingdom led by a new king who would scatter the proud, who would remove unjust rulers who from their thrones, who would lift up the humble, feed the hungry, send the rich away packing. Several years before his death in a sermon during the Christmas season of 1933, the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke these words. The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Scottish theologian William Barclay added, there is loveliness in the Magnificat, but in that loveliness there is dynamite. Christianity begets a revolution in each man and revolution in the world. In fact, this song is so powerful, so potentially uh, revolutionary, so potentially subversive to corrupt governments and rulers that there were at least three separate instances during the 20th century, of governments, namely British India, Guatemala, and Argentina, banning any public recitation or even public display of the Magnificat because they were threatened by its message and they feared that it would trigger an uprising among the poor. Imagine that. In order to understand Mary's song, as Mary understood it, as she intended it, we have to read it in part then against the backdrop of two rulers, two regimes. Uh, The Roman emperor uh, Julius or Caesar Augustus, uh, whose power was absolute, who called himself the son of a god, And secondly, Herod the Great, that murderous tyrant whom uh, Augustus had appointed king of Judea. Uh, Herod had taxed Israel into oblivion, far beyond its means, and, and the ones who felt it most, of course, were the poor. 
the entire nation of Israel, with the exception of the corrupt who, who colluded with the government against their own people, longed for the boot of Rome to be thrown off of them. So with that in mind, listen again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. See, verses 51 to 55, this section of justice is all about God. It's all about what he has done. In fact, notice the repetition of the two-word phrase, he has, he has, six times in five verses. And each of the verbs in each of these verses are in the Greek aorist tense. Why does that matter? It points to a simple action in the past, something that's already happened. So as Mary recites what God has done, she's recalling, in her own mind, specific acts of God in history when he has done what he promised to do. So Mary is magnifying the promise-keeping God of Israel for his faithfulness to his covenants, his faithfulness to his promises. So she sees God's mercy toward her in making her the mother of Messiah in the larger context of his mercy toward his people, Israel. His fulfillment of his promise to send a redeemer, to send a Messiah. And there is, it seems... The distinct implication that because uh, he's been faithful in the past, he can be counted on. He can be counted on to be faithful in the future. Some have called Mary's words in verses 51 to 53 the great reversal. The great reversal because they point to, to God's justice in action. Reversing injustice and bringing about his justice. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. If you were to to read this to a child, he or she might ask, does God have an arm? And you might answer, no, God doesn't have an arm. It's an anthropomorphism. And he or she might ask, well, what's one of those? And you might say, go ask your mother. And a smart mother would answer, an anthropomorphism is an assignment of human characteristics to God so that our limited minds can make sense of him. And and the now enlightened, brilliant child might then ask, can I go play? (laughs) So the psalmist in 89.10, recalling the battle of Jericho, wrote regarding the Lord, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And in 98.1, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. That word translated proud in verse 51 of Luke 1 is, is revealing. It literally means to overshine. To overshine. Have you ever known anyone who just had a predilection for overshining? <laughs> it means to have an overinflated estimation of how shiny you really are. What a star you are. And Herod was always polishing, buffing his own shininess. 
his own star. So Mary looks forward to the shine being taken off the star of the proud. And she envisions a political reversal one day. The next he has is in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. Mary envisions a social reversal, a change in social statuses, a reversal. His words, her words are biblically informed and, and it can be clearly seen by overlaying her words with the words of the prophets and the psalmists. Again, here, for example, 70, uh, Psalm 75, 7, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. In Psalm 147, 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. In verse 53, the reversal Mary has in mind seems to be an economic one. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The King Herod and and the Emperor Caesar Augustus said, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And what's yours is mine, I'll take it. But in the kingdom of God's Son, each person says, what's mine is Yours, I'll share it, I'll give it. Finally, Mary realizes in the arrival of Messiah, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Well, what is it that she's realizing? That God is faithful. That his mercy endures to all generations of those who fear him. And in sending his son in human flesh, born in her body, God is remembering to be merciful to his people, calling it to mind, not as if God would forget, but rather calling it to mind. To minister his chesed, his elios, his faithfulness, his steadfast love to them by keeping all of his promises. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Among those promises is the one he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your own country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, that is in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Will you notice two things in that promise? There's a promise of a land, and there's promise of a great nation of descendants. Thousands of years ago, God promised the land of Israel to Abraham and to his descendants 
who were named through his son Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. And remember the promise that he made to David. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. There is one descendant, David, that will come from your line who I will set on your throne. Galatians 3.16, Paul clarifies, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, meaning many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, your seed, who is Christ. See, the gift of Messiah Jesus is the ultimate proof of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel, his covenant faithfulness then by extension to us who are grafted in by faith to Israel. He is God's yes to all of his promises. Jesus is the ultimate validation of God's righteousness, of his integrity. He's the ultimate expression of God's mercy and grace because he came to make a way for our sin, which separates us from God to be forgiven. He is the ultimate expression of God's justice because the Bible tells us that the wage of sin, the just compensation for sin, is death. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So God demonstrates justice, His justice, by unleashing, just unleashing His wrath on Jesus, His righteous indignation towards sin. He just pours it out on Jesus as the perfect substitute for every human being who by faith accepts him as Savior and Lord. Jesus hung on the cross in your place. Jesus hung on the cross in my place. He is the only one who ever could to reconcile us to God. And at the table of communion, we remember his once for all sin, for all time sacrifice. His mercy and justice summed up, wrapped up, balled up in one decisive saving action. And at the table, we, we remember that, that he became like one of us with flesh and blood. We affirm that he comes to us by the Holy Spirit day to day, moment by moment. And we declare together that he is coming again soon. Go ahead and take that cup that you received on the way in. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 26. says this, now as they were eating, remember this is that last supper before he went to the cross. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then in the very next verse, verse 27, we read this, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's he saying? He's saying that the promises that God made to Israel, they got promises that God made regarding a Savior, that he would remember our sins no more, that he would put his spirit within us, that he would reconcile us to God through a Redeemer who would come and crush the serpent's head. This blood ratifies that covenant. Let's drink it together. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us because it helps us to understand who you are and what you are about in this world, in all of history. Thank you today for the obedience of Mary, for her heart, for her people, and for the people of the world. May we, Lord, reflect in our lives her longing for mercy, her longing for justice, that we might live lives that reflect your heart, the heart of God the Father, the heart of God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.